to uh, uh, preach here and there. Uh, and this week, and almost last week, it's kind of this trajectory of thoughts. Um, I, got a, I got a text at the end of the week about how would I feel about pinch hitting. Um, and so we are shifting trajectory a little bit this morning off the series that we're on as some sickness was going through the team. Um, and why do I say that? I don't say that as a, oh, wow, look at your, you know, your pinch hitting. That's great. Because I've seen enough pinch hitters strike out with the bases loaded in my time watching baseball. So that's not why. There's no Casey at the bat situation uh, going on here at all. I say that, and we feel this a little less um, as a church plant, because um, we depend on the whole community to set up and tear down. Um, everyone rotates through many things. So I know we feel that less, but in our culture, it can be really easy to think church is something that is provided for you, and you just show up. Um, and so I think it's important, for, especially in church context, for people to realize, like, it isn't all just magically fixed behind a curtain. Um, there are things that happen. There's mishaps that happen. There's sickness that's happened. There's other things that happen, and people need to jump in and do things. And out of a lot of the things that have really led to the consumerism of the church, uh, for me and my conviction, is the lack of communal participation that helps make the church happen, exist, to be able to do that. And so I only say that just as an encouragement and a reminder to us that it's not just one person's church. Um, it's just not one person's team. This is a community that comes together in many different ways to be able to make that happen. And even though it can get angsty of setting up chairs and taking down chairs, and it can get angsty if something's going on in the school or not going on in the school, it is you don't know you've lost it until you lost it. And I've worked with enough churches over the years that it's a hard thing to get back. And it's something that I have a lot of colleagues and friends who just have to keep at their community, keep at their community. Now we have all this all pre-set up for you. That doesn't mean we still don't need you anymore <laughs> to be an advocate, to be a prayer uh, partner, to be able to volunteer for things. And so um, I, I hear from them regularly. And so I just want to encourage you all that sometimes it can seem like a burden but it is really a gift to the community, community and the communal focus of our, of our church. So uh, this morning we're going to shift trajectory a little bit, like I said. Um, for those who are visiting, um, and just a reminder for those who are newer, our normal practice is to go through books of the Bible. Um, we'll start at the beginning of the book of the Bible, and we'll go to the end of the book of the Bible, even if that means seven months in very scary texts. Um, it, it is what happens. Uh, every once in a while, we will diverge um, to a smaller series, whether it's key distinctives of who we are, our core values, um, or right now, we are in a series about the intersection of law and grace. Um, and so, though there'll be themes of that this morning, this is its own standalone uh, sermon, and I just wanted to be clear that that's not our normal practice. That is our practice, so you know what to expect. And as I often joke about when I preach, if you like this, I preach here and there. If I don't, if you don't, I don't preach that often. So you are good to go regardless of the trajectory you fall on that um, within it. And so we're going to be sitting with John 20, uh, 19 through 22 uh, this morning. We're going to go through this text. We're going to reflect a little bit on the text. And then one of the ways that we end our sermons is always with gospel application. Uh, we don't want you to come here being like, here's all these things now to go do be reminded and be affirmed and sit in what Jesus has done. Uh, and so that's what we want to do um, as we wrap up messages. Uh, so John 20, 19 through 22 reads this way. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear for the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, 
peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this word, um, this time to be able to reflect on it, to pray through it. I pray in this time that what is of you would stick and what is not would fall away, um, and that through all of this, as we go through our morning of worship, um, as we close it, as we leave here, that much would be made of you. In your name, amen. So I want to walk through this text, um, make some comments on, offer some larger reflection uh, this morning. It is a text that I am continually captured by, and I want to be clear with that. It's not continually captured in the sense that this is my favorite, or this is an easy, or this is something that I just absolutely love. It's one, of my, it's one that I'm continually captured by because it continually convicts and uproots and unsettles me and reminds me then also of who Jesus is in the midst of so many ups and downs and turmoils individually, communally, systematically, in the world as a whole. And so the text began with this recognition of what the disciples were doing, that they are locked away after the, um, Jesus has died. He has reports of him being risen. They're freaking out of the religious leaders of the day. They are locked away in fear. And I, I think it's really important to know that they're not just fearful, they are undone. Like, we can be scared, we can be fearful, but we still know, like, oh, we have our family, or oh, we know we're still heading in the same trajectory. This is all completely shattered for them. They are completely undone. Their way of life, what they understood to be happening, who they understood Jesus to be is in shambles. They're not, they're just not 100% sure what's going on. And then you, that even doubles and triples and quadruples when you realize that not only now are they undone, but through their entire time with Jesus, Jesus is continuously uprooting what they think, who they are, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, what their culture says about who they are, what society has taught them about who they are. If you remember who makes up the disciples, they're not exactly all best friends in the first place. They don't exactly all come from the same walks of life. And so they have been on this journey with Jesus over these years, time and time again, where what they think is normative is challenged and uprooted. What does it mean to be a community? What does it mean to care for those around them? What does it mean when my national identity ends up intersecting with what my faith is? All of these things continually thrown in their face, continually uprooted time and time again, and here it is happening again. Except this time, it's just them. There isn't a Jesus there being like, Peter, you're an idiot. Calm down. Like, this is what's going on. They're just there, locked away in fear. No Jesus. So they're pondering, they're wondering what's going on. And it isn't even, and I think this is key here, it isn't even all the disciples. When every time we hear disciples, we're like, oh yeah, it's all of them, but we think, we got to look in the text, and this is one of the reasons that I appreciate Center Church and Kevin's emphasis on going through the entirety of the text, going through the biblical story, being able to see how it all connects and interacts, because what's happened before, what happens after, is important in the weight that these people are carrying. They're experiencing this in real time. They know this. They don't need to wait to get to the next verses. They know what is going on, and so that is a huge weight. And so Judas has died. Sometimes we forget that. Judas, who rightfully in a lot of ways is painted with ulterior motives, who is challenged, disruptive, always kind of pushing back, has maybe his own interests in mind, as the text tells us, but he is still one of the 12 chosen. He's still a disciple. He is still someone that these people called in with them and journeyed. 
that is a weight. There's, there's few things that I wish um, outside of things about Jesus that Scripture said more than about the death of Judas and the implications of that on the friends, to be sent to that low of a place to, to take the actions that he's taken. So Judas has died. The text tells us later that Thomas isn't even there. As we keep reading the stories, we find out Thomas wasn't there that night. What are the thoughts, what are the fears, what are the concerns about their friend? <laughs> What's happened to him? Has he been captured? Has he stopped? Has he run away? Is he dead? Is he alive? So there's a lot going on. And you can wonder, like, do they even know why they are here? But yet they are. Jesus, multiple times as he called them, said, come and follow me. But I imagine if you're like me, I would have been sitting there being like, but is this what he meant? <laughs> like, this is what we were supposed to follow you into? We thought it was a big overturn of Rome. We thought it was like triumphant. We thought it was this, and now we're locked away. You're dead, but there's rumors that you've risen. We don't know what's going on. And so surely this is not what he had in mind, which even gets added layers to it when you realize that Jesus has continually spoken to disciples about this. <laughs> he has told them about this. But the idea to be able to capture the reality of how much this was going to transform and uproot and cost them wasn't something that they could fully comprehend. And so they sit here, after all of these events, locked away from the very world in which they were called into. And who can blame them? It's scary and unsettling stuff. So all of that's the backdrop, right, of what's going to happen next. All that backdrop to be able to say, like, hey, this is what is happening here. And it is in that place, it is in that place that the clicker hates me. And it's my issue. There it is. Um, and it is in that place, that fear of unsettling, that the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples. That's powerful stuff. It is in that place of fear, of being unsettled, of being freaked out, that Jesus appears. And it's so important here to read this, that Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The verse before that is talking about the door's locked. There isn't a way to get in. <laughs> They're fearful. But Jesus comes in and says, peace be with you. And it's so important how Jesus appears. Does he appear in anger or in wrath? Does he scold them for being locked away? Does he look down on them for not understanding? Does he root shame in them? You should have been better. You should have been smarter. Does he say, hey, I'm done with you. I don't want to invest in you anymore. Jesus does none of these things. Instead, he brings his peace. Jesus comes through the locked door. He comes through their fear. He comes to his friends, to his followers, and he says, peace be with you. In a place of death and fear, Jesus declares, peace be with you. Upon this proclamation, the disciples are overjoyed. They've come face to face with Jesus. The peace that Jesus has offered has driven through their fear and brought joy. The disciples were glad when they saw him. And it's through this foundation of peace, I think that's important, not only did he come in with peace, he laid that foundation of peace, that brought joy. Now notice, they're still in the room, they're still unknown. There is still fear. Not everything's fixed. Not everything's perfect. But in that, Jesus is able to bring in his peace, and he sends them out in that peace. 
Jesus said them to again, not just once, but again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The disciples are brought into peace to be sent out into peace. That's so counterculture to how we get people revved up about things oftentimes. We want people to be angry about things. We want people, we want to, we want to pick at them. We want to get them fired up. We want to get them just to go, right? And Jesus comes in and says, peace. And it's out of this that I am sending you back out. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That is so key right there. You know what, you remember what just happened to Jesus recently? He was killed. Dead people don't breathe. What a great picture to be able to enunciate the reminder of like, no, this isn't just a ghost. This isn't, this isn't the end of Return of the Jedi. These aren't just shadowy figures saying, hey, we're still with you. This is Jesus, alive, breathing out on to his disciples. Not just a theoretical notion of peace, a real, physical, felt presence of Jesus' life is blessed on the disciples to be sent out. And so I hope it's no surprise as you even read through this text and walk through it that this is a text that is easy to be continuously captured by. Um, I want to propose to us in that, as we're captured by it, that the posture of the disciples is very much alive today. And many different, not just today, but yesterday, many other times of life. And I've heard it from many over the years when I was working full-time in ministry, in, in conversations in communities since then, um, even in my current work that I do now, there's a lot of fear. <laughs> um, and we are a fearful people. It's not hard to see that. The way to respond to things, the way that we interact, the way that we distance ourselves from other communities, um, the way we do so many things is rooted in fear. Even so many decisions that we make are rooted in fear. What is going to happen? And it's easy, even if we're not physically locked away, to have that posture of being locked away. So the locked away and fearful is something that we struggle with, that we see in our world. As the world continues to be in turmoil, as continued events happen that make us even more fearful of the world, more concerned. So that's a huge way that this posture is still alive today. Another way is this notion of this isn't what I expected. <laughs> I didn't expect this to happen. I didn't expect being called to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, was going to challenge and convict and disrupt my life this much. I thought I would just be able to get to do the same things I was doing the whole time. I thought I wouldn't be convicted about anything. This isn't what I expected. I didn't realize that when my national identity gets in the way with my faith conviction that, oh, wait, that there might be some problems there. <laughs> there might be some problems there. And, and if anything, so many of these last six to eight, ten years has been a reckoning with the fact of when our cultural faith intersects with our faith of Jesus and realizing what is it that we have been formed and shaped by. And oftentimes when we're talking with people and conversations are getting heated, I, you know, I've, when I've worked with students, I've realized like so many of the things you have to step back and realize that when you're critiquing a cultural norm, we, especially in our context, have embedded our culture so much with our faith that we don't know where one ends and the other begins. And so when someone wants to have a critical conversation about something that's become a cultural norm, you think your very faith is being attacked. 
And then that's when things can get harsh, and that's when things can get ugly. And so this isn't what I expected to follow Jesus. We see it in Scripture throughout, like, the disciples being like, overthrow Rome, do it! Do it like they've done it! It's like, well, how they've done it is not how I'm going to do it. We get so committed to the ways of this world because we don't know that there's another way that is possible. And some of that is because the way that's possible isn't possible with just us. (laughs) We need this. Another thing that's similar in this posture that I hear from us today is that not everyone is here anymore for a variety of reasons. People come and go, whether through that's death, whether through that sickness, whether through that is through polarization and division, whether that is through just personal preference, which oftentimes is actually clothed in division and, <laughs> um, and other things. Um, so not everyone is here anymore. Not everyone here is here anymore, sometimes for valid reasons. Um, there's churches around the U.S. right now that are losing members after members as abuse after abuse gets exposed. Rightfully so. There's people who aren't here anymore because sacrificing oneself to something a community asks for is hard. It's difficult when a school says, I don't really care what your personal convictions are, we're going to have you wear masks for this amount of time. It's not about you. It's about caring for the people who are nice enough to house us in here. Another thing that's similar to the posture that disciples hold is what am I willing to do to survive? And being locked away in a fearful room is not an enjoyable way to live, but it's probably going to keep them alive. (laughs) What are things that daily we're willing to sacrifice to stay alive? What are the things that we're willing to stay alive with and sacrifice even though it's going to cost other people's their lives? The life that's brought through Jesus needed to go out of those walls. What would have been lost if they just stayed in there? What would have been lost if they just like, no, my, my own life's more important than what's happening right now. That's great. Y'all stay bound in slavery. That's fine. I, I need to live. Oh, that's great. You show up in school every day fearful if you're going to walk out of that school. That's fine. I need to stay alive. Because the reality is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a very real spiritual and physical reality. It speaks to it all. It speaks to it all, but it must be rooted in the gospel. And so when Jesus comes in and says, peace be with you, he's not sending them out in talking points. He's not sending them out in other things that aren't the gospel. He is sending them in his peace and Jesus' peace to be rooted in that and then to be sent out. They're not sent out on a political platform. They're not sent out on a specific party line. They are sent out on the peace of Jesus, and the reality is that's going to disrupt it all. It is going to disrupt it all. And it's going to have hard conversations. It's going to have people say, you're X, Y, or Z, and you're like, no, this is what this compels me to. This is what it talks to me to. It is out of this that I need to speak to this. It's out of this that I need to lament this. It's out of this that I need to celebrate this. It's out of this that such death and loss should not be so normative and should not be so accepted. It is that peace that we're called into in division and differences of what does it mean then to be a witness in this world. I'm fumbling through it as much as any of you. 
as many of any of you, but I know that what it is going to take for us to get through it, what it's going to take for us to be able to stay in the community together as Christians is to be able to be rooted in that peace, the time and time again, be able to come back to it and be sent out in it. You're not just sent out in it and you forget about it, you are rooted in it. Over, um, no, no offense to those who like it, but I have, a, I have a dynamically struggled history with Christian music sometimes, especially worship music. I just, there's just, like, we're always like, why are we so individual? And I'm like, how many times have you said I in the last 30 minutes? Like, I struggle with that sometimes every once in a while. There's a lot of great stuff as well, but there is one person that I will continuously come back to every once in a while, and that's uh, Rich Mullins. Um, Rich Mullins was, uh, I will never pretend that I have a clue how Rich Mullins' life would have transferred if he went to die tragically in a life. He is a very imperfect person. Much of his ministry is centered about the fact that he is an imperfect person. So there is no, like, idol worship here. There's no, like, if he was only still here, we wouldn't be in so many of the messes we're in. I just want to be very clear about that. We would be in a lot of messes still. But uh, if you don't know who Rich Mullins is, he was a center of the evangelical world for a while. He got suspended from multiple college campuses, leading chapels, most notably Wheaton, because he challenged the system too much sometimes um, after leading uh, worship there. But, um, and if you don't know him, you probably, unfortunately, only know him for Awesome God, um, which had its moment but can get really, really overplayed sometimes. Um, but I was going to a retreat a while back, and I had his songs album in the CD player. And one of his songs, While the Nation's Rage, came in. And I was so struck by this line of lyrics. And it says that the church of God, she will not bend her knees to the gods of this world, though they promise her peace. She stands her ground, stands firm on the rock, watched her walls tumble down when she lives out his love. And when I heard this, not much different than when I re-listened to it the other day, thinking that I was going to talk about it, um, the world was very much in turmoil. Um, again, there was a handful of events that had happened. There was a handful of things of Christians just going at each other left and right about a variety of stuff. And the things that were the talking points is what I heard in this line, to the gods of this world, though they promise her peace. There's so many things. There's so many bad things, but there's so many things that look good that promise us peace. So like, this is where you're going to find peace. This is where you're going to find hope. If you just vote this way, if you just do this, or you just do this talking point, everything's going to be okay. But what really happens is it's the whole scene of Charlie Brown and Lucy and the football, right? Nope, just that next thing, and then it'll be peaceful. Just that next thing, and then it will be peaceful. Just that next thing, and it will be peaceful. It doesn't. I have a million and a half fundraising emails in my email right now just showing how things aren't going to be peaceful anytime soon. There's only one place that that peace can come from. And that's Jesus. And when you hear Rich sing it, and if you've ever seen him do a concert, whether on video or live, the passion in which he sang it, he was so confident that the knees would not bend. And time and time again, we see them bend for this side or that side or another side. And so we have an opportunity in being rooted in this peace and being sent out in this peace to be able to stand firm in Jesus, to be reminded, to remind one another that that's the only thing that's going to have firm foundation underneath it. That's the only thing that you need to keep coming back to. And because of that, that doesn't mean that the gospel then is like, oh, avoid these conversations. Avoid these convictions. Don't reflect on them. It sends you into them out of that peace. It sends you into that witness. 
And I, I was talking to um, I was talking to someone who's involved in uh, school and city here, and then I was talking to some friends who are on staff at other churches. And this uh, individual said to me, they're like, I'm just, I, I'm talking to these other pastors in the area, and I'm just so glad I don't have any single angry emails from you about what we're asking y'all to do through the early part of the pandemic. I'm talking to these other pastors in the neighborhood, and they are getting 10, 20, 30 emails a day from congregants threatening them, threatening the church, threatening to leave. And it's like, it's just such a beautiful witness to us that you're not treating us awful. <laughs> Y'all, the bar is so low to be a positive witness for the gospel in our culture. That should convict us. That shouldn't shame us. It should convict us to continuously time and time and time again run back to Jesus. And to be encouraged, not just run back to Jesus individually, to be rooted in a community together to affirm, encourage, challenge, and convict one another in that. So questions that I've been pondering, and I ponder these regularly as I reflect on this passage, is are we living out of the peace we have been given? And what I love about this question, this idea of are we living out of the peace that we've been given, it's like, have you gone found the peace and earned it? Have you gone and done that? No, are you already living out of the peace that has been given to you? You don't got to go climb this ladder to be like, okay, I got the peace of Jesus. It is there. It is offered to you. It is given. Let yourself fall into it. Encourage others to fall into it. Let yourself be encouraged to fall into it. And out of that foundation, then, are we giving others the peace we have been sent out to proclaim and be ambassadors of? And I love that we are not just sent out, but we are called, in multiple times in Scripture, we are called to be ambassadors. That isn't just, okay, I'm sent out in this peace, but I'm going to be an ambassador of it. And my life, and my words, and my actions, not to boast ourselves up, but to make much of Jesus. So are we living out of the peace we have been given, and are we giving others the peace we have been sent out to proclaim and be ambassadors of? Honestly, you could just keep those rotating through your head <laughs> consistently to keep it in front of you within that. There isn't then what's next. When do I arrive here? I've told this story multiple times, which is great because it's a story about reminding. Therefore, it fits into being told multiple times since the core of it is being reminded. I don't know how many times I just said reminded in that sentence, but it was a lot. Um, uh, and Kevin brings us up constantly as well. Um, I, have a, I have a former colleague in ministry uh, who's now uh, a head of the LCMC, the Lutheran Church on Mission for Christ. Um, uh, he's their chairperson as a, a denomination, and you'll ask him, you'll be like, Mike, what's your call? And he's like, to remind people of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But like, what's your, what's your church building strategy? To remind people of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, like, how are you getting people interested with cool attractions and things like that? And he's like, to remind people of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, like, what is, and it's like, literally, we could have this conversation for an hour, and I will answer the same way every single time. To remind people that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ 
transforms and saves, and it's not something you do for yourself. It is something that is done for you and that we are sent out in and rooted in. As I noted earlier in the sermon, we always wrap up our messages with gospel application. And so I got two for us today to be able to be sent out on with these questions, is that Jesus pursues us in his peace. Disciples weren't out looking for the resurrected Jesus. They were locked away in fear, behind a locked door. I'm a huge fan of magic and Houdini, but, like, breaking locks is not easy. (laughs) You have to already have it rigged somehow. Like, Jesus goes through the locked door, right? He pursued his disciples, not in anger, not in shame, not in guilt, but in his peace. And Jesus does the same for us. He pursues us in his peace. I think it's important to remember because every once in a while we want kind of like, the oh, great, this is all like, cool, it's all fixed now. And that's not always the case. I don't know. But Jesus continues to pursue us in that peace and reroots us and reshapes us and reforms us in that peace. And then he keeps doing it. And he keeps doing it. We don't have to go pursue it. Jesus pursues us with it. And then we receive that and allow ourselves to be transformed by Jesus through participation in community. And the peace of Christ is with us. And every once in a while I joke about like my liturgical upbringing in a variety of ways, and then I went to grad school and a liturgical context, and I just, I remember <laughs> we had this, uh, this professor who's since passed, passed away. He's a leading, uh, leading scholar in the Hebrew scriptures, Terence Fredheim a dynamic individual, um, always told funny stories. And I would, I would bring Brennan to chapel with me. Brennan's 10 now. He was a lot younger then. I'd bring Brennan to chapel with me. And uh, Terry would always get down on one knee during the passing of the peace and said, Brennan, may the peace of Christ be with you. Every Wednesday without fail. Now, can we make anything routine, cliche, and just checking off boxes? Absolutely. But it was just so beautiful to see this older person at the end of his career, at the end of his call, at the end of his life, bend down to my little kid and say, peace of Christ be with you. It's such a gift to be able to share that with one another, to be able to embody that to one another, to be able to be present with that in one another, and we are able to do that because Jesus pursues us in his peace. We do it out of that, not out of our own ego, not out of our own, ah, look at us, We do that because we have been pursued and we pursue others in that peace as ambassadors of that peace.